first reading is Psalm 90, 90. It's to be found on page 599 of your Bibles. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years, or 80, if you have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have passion on your servants. Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading can be found on the bottom of page 1,225 and is from the first letter of John, chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, 
because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Tony and Dealey, for those two readings. Well, could I encourage you to have open, especially in front of you, our first reading, the Old Testament reading, Psalm 19. That was on page 599. We're going to be mainly looking at that this morning. It'd really be encouraging to me if you're able to find a Bible and have that open in front of you. As we're beginning a new series entitled Christ in All Seasons of Life. If you were here last term, we were looking at what it looks like to follow Jesus in every single area of life. Not just here in church, but what you do when you get up in the morning all the way through to your sleeping hours at night. And that, in a sense, was a widthways cross-section through lives, through your life, asking how can you be a follower of Christ in the whole of your life, week by week. What we're doing this term is to look lengthways along lifespan, actually, and ask of every age and stage and season of life, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like in the Middle Ages when I'm middle-aged and going slightly grey? What does it look like when I'm a young adult just starting out and trying to work things out? What does it look like when I'm perhaps in my senior years and reflecting back on a lot of life? What does it look like? And I'm aware for many of you, you will fit into one of these categories that are on the term card. And many of you may think you're in one category and you're actually in another. Um, It will dawn on you as we go through it, perhaps. But for all of us, I hope it equips us to help every single person in the church family. Because we're all of different ages and stages And we all need to be able to encourage one another in those ages and stages. So you may not be in a particular age that's mentioned on a given Sunday, but you can still learn and you can still help those who are or those that are caring for those that are in that place. This is a holistic view of doing life together here at St. Jude. So can I encourage you to dig into what we're doing, uh, have a think through what's being said, and just to be really passionate as we do life together, is how we can help each other through the whole length of it. I'm actually going to be introducing this morning the whole series through the lens of this psalm, Psalm 90. It's the oldest psalm in the Bible. It's written by Moses. It says Moses, the man of God, the only psalm that he wrote, and actually a very precious psalm that we're going to be digging into that touches on this theme of lifelong discipleship in every age and stage of it. Before we look at it, I'm going to pray again. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you for the lives you've given to us. Thank you for the lives that we've already lived. Lord, thank you for the lives that have years to come. Lord, we pray for wisdom, for your leading, that we might make the most of those lives. They might flourish in the way that you've intended them to be, and that we might be thoroughly equipped to help others in their lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, we're going to dig straight into the psalm, so I do have it open in front of you. And right at the beginning, it says, Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And this should give us lots of reassurance because of who Moses was. 
You see, he has really lived life in every age and every stage. We think the psalm was probably written towards the end of his life. And actually, by that point, he's lived a lifetime that was probably the equivalent of thousands of lifetimes for many of us. You might remember some bits of that lifetime. As a baby, when he was born, his birth was contested and he was miraculously delivered, drawn out of waters from which his name comes and kept safe from infanticide. As a young child, he was raised in Pharaoh's household by his own mother through divine providence. And he lived in that tension of both cultures, both Egyptian and his home Israelite culture, and had to work that out. As a young man, he got it horribly wrong, didn't he? He murdered someone as an act, what he thought of kindness, of defense of a fellow Israelite, but actually meant that he had to run away in the midst of life and go into exile. And then for 40 long years, he was there in the wilderness as a shepherd. He raised a family and he seemed to have disappeared off the face of the earth and out of God's purposes. They were humbling years. But then at the age of 80, the grand old age of 80, God calls him and says, you, Moses, are going to lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt and into the promised land. He says, who, me? Really? Me? And God says, yes, you, you're ready for this now. You really are. And so Moses is called to stand before Pharaoh and the powers that be and perform signs and wonders and speak of God's glory. And eventually, you'll know, he leads the people of Israel out of Egypt and into another stage. And again, a tough time of life. Forty years or so of wandering around in the wilderness, embattled leadership, frustrating people of God. And by the end, he doesn't quite get to the promised land, but he sees it from afar. And he dies knowing that Israel will be there, that his assistant Joshua is going to do it. And he's fulfilled his purpose. He's done what God has called him to do in every part of his life at the end. He's, lived, he's really lived life. He knows what he's talking about when he writes about life. And in what he writes in this psalm, there are two things that he seems to point to as life lessons for every single one of us, whatever age or stage we are, however much we've experienced or still have to experience. And I'm just going to highlight those this morning. And the first thing that he seems to point towards is that in our lifetimes, we should learn to make God our home, that God is home. Let me read verse 1 and 2 out again to us. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You see, in the context of the time, Israel, the people of God, had never had a permanent home. It just hadn't happened for them. Their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were wandering nomads, promised a land but never receiving it. They themselves had been in Egypt, a foreign land that was not their home, where they were put into slavery. They had, didn't have a home there. And then in the wilderness wanderings, they had no fixed address. They were led from place to place to place. They did not have a physical home. They'd, they'd never had it. 
But what does Moses say here? He says, actually, all along we've had a home, that God has been our dwelling place. He's been our home in the midst of it all. He's been that place of security, of constancy, of shelter, that God is home. Um, For all of us here, this is a lesson to learn whatever age you are, whatever stage you are, that the place that you live isn't home. It's not your permanent home. It won't be forever. There is only one place to really make home a permanent home, and that is with him, with God. It's very rare nowadays for someone to live in the same home their whole lifetime. In fact, I would love to know, has anyone here ever lived in the same home for their entire lifetime? Has anyone done that? No. Yes. How wonderful. That is one for one person out of about 200. Most of us will have more than one home. Some of us will have multiple homes, sometimes in the same city, sometimes all over the nation or even globe. I'm from a family that's been all over the globe in the generations, actually. We've never really had a fixed home. And for many of us, actually, especially if we contemplate buying a home, it's harder and harder to do so. And actually having a fixed address is going to become more and more difficult. Some of us have been blessed with a home with a paid-off mortgage and everything is fine and you know that you're probably going to live there for the rest of your life. Some of us haven't got that at all. But whatever it is, none of those things, none of those places is home. It really isn't. One day, either it will be taken from you or you will be taken from it. It's going to happen. It isn't your permanent home. Hard for some of us to think about, but it's going to happen. There is only one place that is permanent. Only one place that will never be taken from you. And that is a home with God. You see, he's present wherever you go. Whatever season of life you're in. If you learn to live in him, make him that place of rest and refuge, well, you'll always be at home because home will always be with you. It's that simple. And it's really interesting that for Israel... They had to be taught this in their wilderness wanderings. They really did. You see, for 40 years, they were led from place to place without a permanent home. And the only thing that was permanent during that time was the presence of God, that pillar of cloud that led them by day and of fire by night. They'd been promised a home in the promised land, and that, they were looking forward to that. They thought, that's going to be great. But God had to teach them this first, that that place you're going to, as great as it is, is not what you are to call your dwelling place and home. It's me, and I'm teaching you this now so you don't get it wrong then. I think, sadly, they didn't quite learn the lesson. They'd learned it a bit, but not fully. God had to teach them that again, actually, and again, and again, and again. It's not those things. It really isn't. It's me. I'm the place of home and shelter. And for us, I hope, this is a lesson that many of us have learnt. And if we haven't, well, then we should learn it. Because if you haven't learned it, well, life in all its ages and stages can throw some real curveballs. 
some real challenges and difficulties and a sense of shaking where permanence drifts away. But if you've learned this, if you've learned God to be your dwelling place, your shelter, your refuge, well, none of those things in the end will work to your bad. Actually, they'll work to your good because you've made him your home. The Bible says, actually, that one day this is going to be true permanently and fully. Revelation 21, it says that about heaven meeting earth and God saying, now God, I will be your dwelling place. I will dwell with them and they will dwell with me, therefore. It's going to be like this for all eternity. And God is often trying to equip us for eternity. He says, learn it now. Learn it now. Otherwise, it's going to be a shock when it comes. Learn it now, actually, that God is that place of home. Well, what does this look like practically? Um, I'm going to share an embarrassing story. Um, I seem to do this a lot, and often I get a lot of joke, uh, um, jokes afterwards. Please be kind. Please be kind. Um, one of the signs, I think, of the fact that I might be heading into the Middle Ages, I'm not sure, I'm trying to resist it, um, is the fact that I have taken great delight over the last few years in becoming a member of the National Trust. Um, and if you know what that is, that is a membership that allows you to go to some stunning gardens and stately homes and coastal walks, and they're just amazing and refreshing and beautiful, especially over summer as they, it comes into its own. And uh, most of the time I spend going to stately homes. There's some great ones around here, actually, in the Downs. And some of those houses still have the original family, a few generations removed, living in them. During the daytime, visitors are allowed in, but they're not allowed to touch anything. They're not allowed to sit on the sofas. <laughs> they really can't pull the books out of the library. And they're definitely not allowed to use the kitchen. No, it's just for looking and being amazed at what's going on and how this house has been built. But come the night time, actually, and actually the visitors are closed, uh, it's closed to visitors, and it reverts back to being a family home. And the family is able to use any room they want sometimes. They can sit on the sofas. They can open up the library and read the books. They can even, should they wish, use those grand kitchens. It's their home. And I'm saying that's a good picture of what it means to have God as home. Because the difference is between a visitor and someone who's made that place their home. For a visitor, if you're just visiting these things about God, well, you're just looking and exploring and being amazed at certain things. But at the end of the day, you go somewhere else and call that home. But for the person that has made God home, well, that is your place of dwelling, where you've learnt to live, where you find yourself comfortable, where you can just be in that place of his presence. And that's what it looks like. That's the difference. And may we all learn that. Moses, by the end of his life, had learnt this. It taken a few knocks to knock it into him. But may we as well learn this lesson to call God our home. Well, that was the first thing from the psalm. Secondly, I think this psalm points us towards another truth to learn in our lifetime, and that is this, that we should put our times into God's hands. 
In our psalm, Moses speaks of his awareness of two separate timescales at work during life. And the first one is God's. Verse 2 says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. See, time means very little to God. He lives forever, eternity. He lives both outside of time and inside of time and at every single point of time simultaneously. All history lies open before him in his hands. He is the Lord of time. He created time and time has no mastery over him. He can shape it, bend it and break it as he wills. He's the Lord of time. But then there's a second time scale at work in this psalm, and that's ours, which is the complete opposite. Verse 5, Moses says that we're like the grass that springs up in the morning, but then by evening it's dry and withered. We're so temporary, we're so finite, our lives have fixed number of years here on earth. Verse 10, he says, the length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Most of us will be painfully aware of this. You look in the mirror and think, who is this person looking back at me? I don't recognize them. Something's changed. Oh, it's me and I've changed. Okay, right, time is having its effect. You see, unlike God, we're not in control of time. Actually, Time, to a certain degree, has control over us. We're finite and frail and limited. And the best of us, no matter how fit and active, no matter how well we eat, will have a fixed amount of time here on earth. Maybe a bit more than 80 years now, but not that much more, actually. Not that much more. It's a hard truth for us to grapple with. It's one of the truths that all of us are going to have to grapple with at some point. And these two timescales, God's eternity, his limitless years, and our finitude and fixed amount of years, if we're not careful, could lead to a sense of despair. What's the point in life? If all that we do will just be blown away with the wind, what's the point? Seasons come, seasons go, and that's it. The world continues. What's the point? There's a sense of that in this psalm, Moses asking that question, expressing his emotions about this. And throughout the Bible, people wrestled with this question. What's the point? The greatest wrestler of this question was the writer of Ecclesiastes. He spends the whole book, really, wrestling with this point. What is the point of life? if it's so finite, if it's so fixed, if in the end, it'll be blown away with the wind. He calls it vanity of vanities. All is in vain. What's the point? I wonder if you've ever asked yourself that question. Well, interestingly, wrestling with that question, he also comes up with a solution. In Ecclesiastes 3, he says this, God has made everything beautiful in its time. 
He has also set eternity into the hearts of men and women, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added from it, nothing taken away. You see, the solution to this is to put all our times into God's hands. That that God who put eternity in our hearts, that longing for permanence of significance, can actually make everything about your life beautiful in the right season. And what he does through you will last forever. You see, these two timelines don't have to be separate. They don't have to be. Moses is saying here to us and prompting and provoking us to put one in the other, to put our finite lifetimes into the hands of God's infinite lifetime so that through us he can do eternal things, that through us there might be lasting significant things that won't be blown away, the effects that you will have on people, the way that you live your life, the things that you do will echo down the generations if you do them with him because he is there for the long haul, because he is eternal. This is why David prays in Psalm 31, my times, O Lord, are in your hands. He's learned this, putting my times in his hands, because mine are just finite, but his are eternal. And if we do this, if we learn to do this in our lifetimes at every age and stage, Well, God can do some amazing things. He can make them beautiful. He can make them of eternal impact. Firstly, he can connect all the ages and stages of life so that they're not disjointed or separate, like a string that connects pearls on a necklace. He can just make it all fit together. The person you were in your youth, the person you are in your not-so-much youth, to the person you perhaps are now. He can make that all fit together. He can be the same yesterday, today, and forever for you. That constancy in your life. Secondly, he's the one that can provide stability over the years. Every single thing around you that you can see with your eyes right now will change. One day this church will not be here. You might not have realized that, but one day this church won't be here. One day the people around you won't be here, perhaps in Portsmouth. One day the house that you're living in will look very different and have changed. One day your life will have changed dramatically. Nothing around you that you can see with your eyes is permanent. Not a single thing. But there is a place of permanence that we were talking about earlier. There is a place that if you learn to put your times in his hands, he is that permanence that you can have. He is the rock of ages, the Bible says. Underneath are the everlasting arms. He can be that sure and certain stability that each and every one of us needs. And lastly, actually, placing your times in his hands means that in the warp and woof of them, he can turn everything into good. He can turn it all to good. He can prepare you for experiences you've had in the past for things perhaps decades in the future to come, because he knows both simultaneously. He can connect your future to your present right now by revealing it prophetically, if he wants to. 
And he can even take your past, your dim and distant past, and wrap it into your future, taking past mistakes, hurts, things you've done, and actually working them into founts of blessing and encouragement and grace in the future. He's able to do that if we let him because of his lordship of him, because of his eternity, because of his power, if we allow him our times and seasons in life. That's what he will do. He'll make it beautiful. He'll make everything work together for good. In the 1994 Oscar-winning film Forrest Gump, uh, Tom Hanks plays a slightly mentally disadvantaged young Alabaman called Forrest Gump. And uh, for those of you that have seen it, he is led through the most amazing series of events in his lifetime. It's really bittersweet to watch as he plays college football by accident. He wins the Medal of Honor in Vietnam. Do you remember that? He becomes a rich businessman. He runs across the globe, across the continent. And in the end, he has a child with his college sweetheart. And do you remember what he said about life when asked about it? My mama always said, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. At the time, it won six Oscars and became one of the biggest hits of the night. And critics were amazed. Why is it so popular? What is it about this film that has just made it one of the biggest blockbusters of this decade? And a big part of its success, people ended up realizing, was that it struck a deep chord. This longing we have for life to work together, for in every age and stage, for it to all turn out right, to be made beautiful in its time, like the writer of Ecclesiastes says. It's something that's deep within all of us that we long to see in our loved ones and in our own lives, for it all just to work together for good. And if we try to do this ourselves, or most likely we're not wise enough to predict and navigate your entire future. You just can't predict the things that are going to be thrown at you. You can't predict other people. You can probably predict yourself. But the things, the circumstances that are out of your control, well, you have no power over them. If you rely on hapstance and chance like Forrest Gump did, Well, let me tell you in advance, it's not going to work out like it did for him, actually. Yes, life is like a box of chocolates, but sometimes it's just full of those awful ones that you hate, like coffee liquors. It doesn't necessarily work out always to good. But let me just encourage you, if you learn this lesson, to put your times in God's hands in every age and season and time of your life, well, he can do it. He's big enough wise enough, strong enough to, and he loves you enough that he wants to do it. He can make it all work together for good. He can make it beautiful in its time if we learn to do this. And let me end with a story of someone who really had learned to do this. The early church father, Polycarp, bit of an interesting name, uh, who as a young man was perhaps one of the most blessed of the first Christian generation. He was mentored by the Apostle John at his feet as an old man. And he learned all the deep truths that John, who had received those truths from Jesus, 
had to give us, some of which are recorded in the Bible. But he needed to have learnt well because his lifetime was one of great calling and purpose. And especially in the end of his life, he was called to lead the early church, to be its outspoken spokesperson in the face of great opposition and persecution. The Romans were killing church leaders, were exiling them, were torturing them. And at the end of his life, in his 80s, he was captured and brought in front of a Roman magistrate and threatened with the most awful death, to be torn apart by wild beasts. Or if that didn't scare him, to be burnt alive. One of the two, which one scares you the most? We're going to go for that. And they said to him, the Roman judge said to him, you can avoid all that, actually. He said, revile Christ and I will set you free. If you just reject your faith, I'll set you free. But his very famous reply was this. These 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He just said, looking back on my lifetime, all of those years, he's not done a single thing wrong with it. In every age and stage, I look back and says, he's done everything in the best way possible. He's done all things well. How can I possibly reject him now? He's been trustworthy. He's been faithful. He's shown himself to be who he said he is, and he will be. Not a chance am I going to blaspheme him. Bring on the lions, he later said. Bring them on. I go willingly. And for each and every one of us, we learn these things. At the end of our lives, whenever that last day will be, we will be able to look back and say, he has done everything right. He's done all things well. I could never reject him now. Not a chance. Bring on the future. I know who he is. I know he has everything in his hands. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do just want to thank you that you are the Lord of a lifetime. Many of us have lived many years of that lifetime. Some of us, not so many. Lord, for all the years you've given us, we thank you. For all the years you will give us, we thank you. And we pray, teach us these truths. Teach us how to make you our home in every age and stage. And teach us to put every single one of those stages into your hands. Whatever that means, wherever you would have us go, whatever you'd like us to do. We want to place them into your loving, powerful and shaping hands that you might do your beautiful work. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Can I invite you to stand? Can I, I'm just going to ask the band to come up and we're going to sing appropriately praise and worship to this God who does these things.